You're listening to a Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. The sixth annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland interdisciplinary conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2016. The conference was generously supported by an NUI Galway President's Award for Research Excellence to Professor Stephen Ellis, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Discipline of History at NUI Galway, and the Society for Renaissance Studies. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by David Roy from University College Cork. His paper was entitled Creating Borders in Colin Clouds Come Home Again. Good afternoon. I'd, I'd like to start off with a quote um, from the Tears of the Muses. Um, and the, these are uh, words attributed to Urania, where she complains, Through knowledge we behold the world's creation, how in his cradle first he fostered was, and judge of nature's cunning operation, how things she formed of a formless mass. By knowledge we do learn ourselves to know, and what to man and what to God we owe. And it's, it's on that last part that I'd like to focus a little bit on what to man and what to God we owe. Um, in particular, um, how we, we look at the borders and the bounds of Spencer's uh, monster plantation. So to begin with, the, the greatest challenge that one faces when trying to map Spencer's monster plantation lies with the maps themselves. Thomas Heron, on his centering Spencer webpage, which is a really good webpage, it's a great resource, has three maps that are useful but ultimately lacking in detail. So this here um, is a map of the province of Munster. It was created by Francis Jobson somewhere between 1590 and 1592. Um, This portion of it, I've zoomed in on on the part that I guess is pertinent to this presentation, and you can just about make out um, Spencer right over there. While this map is excellent for the way in which it situates Spencer in relation to his neighbours, it can be quite difficult um, for, to, to be exact about the borders of his land. Um, the map's found in Pauline Henley, um, in her Spencer in Ireland, and in Alexander Judson's uh, work Spencer in Southern Ireland, are both a little more accurate uh, and quite useful in their own ways, but ultimately lacking in detail. Uh, especially topographical detail. I mean, we, we get a sense of where the hills are, but there's, there's not too much more um, in that. Ordnance survey maps can be found on the Archaeology Ireland website, such as this here. It's, it's called the Historic Map. Um, and they, they can be good, uh, but they tend to get a little bit cluttered with the red dots that you see all over them. Um, and when I first saw that, I thought, this is amazing. There's so much to, to look at. Um, but really, most of those dots signify marshy land and enclosures. So that's, that's about it. Um, I found Google Maps to be, to be fairly useful. Um, so if we want to see what it looks like now with, with roads, um, especially the satellite image, it, it's useful. But there's still problems with, with the satellite image. This whole portion of the map here, you can notice it's fairly blurry. I mean, it doesn't have full coverage um, around Spencer's land, so looking in and around Botovant 
can be fairly difficult. So while I was going through all of these maps, um, my plan was to superimpose um, the the plowlands that we think Spencer owned um, onto one of these Google Map images where you, you've got the town that lands named anyway. Um, but that was tricky in and of itself because the plowlands names aren't the same. The townlands names are the same, and 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 even working between townlands and plowlands and defining the two can be tricky in and of itself. Uh, Pauline Henley says that Spencer got a compact block of land lying between the rivers Bregog and Orbeg and the Ballyhora Hills with Ard Adam and Kilvacnes or Kilmacness um, outside of, of the Bregog. Uh, thus, the Bregog flowed through the estate and the Orbeg bounded it. Henley also points out that Spencer lost Ard Adam and Ard Gilbert or Bally Ellis to Nicholas Shinen in a legal dispute over who rightfully owned these ploughlands. Um, it, it's, I guess it's useful to note at this point that a ploughland um, is it, it's a, the amount of land that could be worked in one year by a plough and six horses. Uh, so it represented about 120 acres of good arable land, but neither bog nor wasteland was counted. Um, and because of that, Spencer's um, land, uh, I, I guess it took up nine ploughlands, which, which was made up of 3,028 acres. So, I mean, it, there's some fairly marshy ground um, around where Spencer is. According to the Irish land system, no rent or tax was ever paid on bad land, but Elizabeth charged half a dime an acre for waste land. Um, the list of ploughlands that Spencer owns, according to Henley, are as follows. So that's a list that Henley has in her book. <coughs> Andrew Hadfield uh, doesn't use ploughland as his measure. He uses the more common townland. A townland is the smallest administrative division of land in Ireland. On Spencer's land, they correspond quite closely to the ploughlands that Henley refers to. Han- ha- um, Hadfield lists the following as townlands by Spencer. One obvious observation that shows the difference between ploughlands and townlands is that according to Henley, Kilcolman only makes up one ploughland, but according to Hadfield, the same area is split into three townlands. Hadfield identifies the boundaries of Spencer's land as the rivers, Orbeg and Castlepook, and the Ballyhura Hills. So the difference between their accounts um, is on the eastern border, where Hadfield says it's the Castlepook. And um, Henley says that it's the Bregog, but the Castle Pook does flow into the Bregog, so it's it is right there. It's it's marginal. In Colin Clout's Come Home Again, Spencer, through his best known alter ego, Colin Clout, delineates the borders of his ground. When asked by Cuddy to recount the song that he had sung when he, the shepherd of the ocean or rally, did play. Colin tells the tale of the marriage of the rivers Bregog and Mola. Quote, Old Father Mole, Mole hide that mountain grey that walls the north side of Armala Dale. He had a daughter, fresh as flower of May, which gave that name unto that pleasant vale. Mola, the daughter of old Mole, so high the nymph, which of that water course has charge, that spring out of Mole doth run down right to Butterland, where spreading forth at large, it giveth name unto that ancient city, which kill the mullah clepid is of old. 
whose ragged ruins breed great ruth and pity to travelers which it from far behold. Full fain she loved, and was beloved full fain of her own brother river Bregoghite, Sawhite so because of his deceitful train, which he the muller wrought to win delight. End quote. There are three main characters in this in this song that, that Colin Clout sings. We have Father Mole, Mulla, and Bregog. Speaking of Arlo Hill in Book 7 of the Mutability Cantos in The Fairy Queen, we read, Who knows not Arlo Hill, which I guess is an echo itself of who knows not Colin Clout. Uh, but continuing the quote, That is the highest head of all men's heights of my old father Mole. A.C. Hamilton notes that Arlo Hill is Spencer's name for Gauti Moor, the highest peak of the Gauti Mountains. While, as P.W. Joyce points out, quote, the mole refers here to the entire range, including the Gautis and the Balihura Mountains, uh, end quote. So in that image there, you can see the Balihura Hills in the background as that northern border uh, and the Orbeg is, is running here is the eastern uh, sorry the western border of Spencer's land. Uh, the mullah is the name that Spencer uses for the Orbeg, as stated in Colin Clout's Come Home Again. The mullah giveth name unto that ancient city which killed the mullah Clepidus of old. The Bregog, which forms the western border, meaning deceitful, is so named because during certain months of the year, about a mile of the river disappears underground, only to resurface further down its course. The Bregog uh, retains its name within the poem. Hadfield argues that Spencer uses his knowledge of local topography to produce an etiological fable which explains the creation of the rivers, the Muller, Muller and Bregog, that mark the boundaries of his own lands and that connect him to the key settlements in the area. In other words, the natural features that determine his life. This episode that takes up 55 of the 955 lines of the poem, as Sam Myers observes, quote, has been regarded as a pleasant digression by, some, by, by the few critics who have concerned themselves about it at all, end quote. I think that's a bit harsh. I think there have been more people that have spoken about it. Um, but in terms of the travel that Colin undertakes throughout the poem, it can, be, it can also be seen as the starting point of his journey, this being the case, Colin's journey begins on Spencer's land, then moves to the English court and back to his monster home. This episode also works to situate Spencer firmly in an Irish context with all uh, that that implies for him as a new English settler. It is important to note the ways in which Spencer refers to the Muller and Bregog in both Colin Clout's Come Home Again and the Fairy Queen. In Colin Clouds Come Home Again, Colin refers to, quote, my river, end quote, Bregog. And in the Fairy Queen, we read of, quote, Mullah mine, end quote. The use of my and mine are appropriate for both because in a very, very real sense, they belong to Spencer. They, they bordered his land. Spencer's castle at Kilcolman occupied a key strategic position. In the words of Hadfield, quote, a letter from John Parrott to the Privy Council dated the 25th of October 1584 lists Kilcolman as one of the castles that are to be fortified. Its strategic importance above the rich, fertile Blackwater Valley, vital to guard the route between the Bogara and Nagel Mountains down to Cork. Accordingly, Spencer's house was one of the many small settlements established and developed along the valley 
in the 1580s, end quote. By situating, uh, being situated close to the Orbeg, which was navigable by boat and gave access to the Blackwater, which continues on to Yall, um, this would have added to the land's appeal. Returning for a moment to the quote from Colin Clout's Come Home Again, there is a reference to the ragged ruins of Bottevant. This could also this could be a reference to either the bot, uh, to Bottevent itself, where we have the abbey, and you, you note the Orbeg there as the western border in the foreground, and this is literally on on the opposite bank from Spencer's Land. Um, or it could also be a reference to the Ballyveg Priory. Um, both were established during the 13th century. Both were uh, dissolved during the reign of Henry VIII. And both were in a state of disrepair by the time Spencer took up residence at Kilcolman. Uh, the way that other of Spencer's, the, the way that another of Spencer's poems, *The Ruins of Rome*, reminisces over these pre-Reformation church, is by lamenting the fall of the Roman Empire. As Richard McCabe observes, quote, "Under Constantine and his successors, the term imperium acquired an almost theocratic aura." Henceforward, barbarians were also pagans, and to civilize was to Christianize. The act of suppression was regarded as an act of charity, end quote. In this context, the geopolitical entity that is referred to as Rome is also made up of any space that adopts its religion. Rome is not simply an empire, it is also a religious idea, hence Rome's boundaries are not delineated only by those areas that have been con. Conquered through military might, but also those that have been converted to its theocratic system. As such, the ruins of Rome are not just to be found in Rome itself, and are not just the classical ruins that most people would think of, such as the Colosseum, the Roman Forum, and so forth, but also the remnants of the theocratic system that belonged to Rome, such as the monasteries and friaries that were dissolved during the reign of Henry VIII. Spencer's land is also bordered by forests. So at the foot of the, the Ballyhur Hills um, were some fairly significant forests. Um, the forests found at the feet of the Ballyhur Hills were notoriously dangerous to the point that the new English settlers would have, would have had to have traveled in armed convoys from fortified house to fortified house in an attempt to be safe. For Spencer, the ruins of Rome and forests are sites of conflict and anxiety. Uh, both are bearing down on the borders of his land. But I don't think that's the only reading that we can take from, um, from Colin Clouds Come Home Again and thinking about those borders. There's also an anxiety that's evident in relation to the permanence of those borders. Uh, by comparing the deeds to Spencer's land with the borders that he creates in Colin's Colin Clouds Come Home Again, there's a clear rupture between natural and man-made borders. This rupture between natural and man-made um, borders um, and just the rupture that happens between things that are man-made and things that are natural is not unique to Colin, Clout, Colin Clouds Come Home Again. It also comes up in the general argument of the shepherd's calendar in relation to the calendar and which calendar is, is used. Um, so here's a couple of quotes that just illustrate that. For it is well known and stoutly maintained with strong reasons of the learned that the year beginneth in March, for then the sun reneweth his finished course 
and the seasonable spring refresheth the earth, and the pleasance thereof being buried in the sadness of the dead winter, now worn away, reliveth. For albeit that in elder times, when as yet the, the count of the year was not perf- uh, perfected, as afterwards it was by Julius Caesar, they began to tell the months from March beginning. So he sets forward this argument, E.K. in, in the general argument, uh, puts forward this argument that the start of the year should really be March. Um, and I mean, at this point, the 25th of March was the start of the new year. Um, and there's, there's a sense that this harks back to ancient times, um, not just Julius Caesar, but even back to um, when the children of Israel left Egypt. Yet, this is the closing paragraph of that argument. It says, But our author, respecting neither the subtlety of one part nor the antiquity of the other, thinketh it fitteth, fittest according to the simplicity of common understanding. To begin with January, winning it perhaps no decorum that shepherd should be seen in a matter of so deep insight or, or uh, canvas a case of so doubtful judgment. So there's this rupture between the, the natural start of the year in March and when a man has decided to start the year in his calendar. Um, the debate about the calendar was just beginning around this point. When the Shepherd's Calendar was published, uh, the board... Yeah, so the, the, there, there, were these, there were these debates about which calendar should be used um, more generally within society, and that was kicking off when the Shepherd's Calendar was published. The border issues were obviously more of a concern for Spencer when he wrote Calling Clouds Come Home Again, um, and he was obviously anxious about the borders of his land. But both raise important questions about the legitimacy of man-made laws and borders, which in turn questions the le- le- legitimacy of those that are making those laws, that are creating them. Um, So to conclude, um, Spencer's lands are highly problematic. It's difficult to to define exactly what those borders are. Um, But Spencer does work to at least highlight a rupture between what he owned legally and what he delineated as those borders. Uh, the borders that he delineates in Calling Clouds Come Home Again are more natural borders, um, being the Ballyhora Hills to the north, the Orbeg to the west and south, and the Bregog to the, the east. Um, Spencer's land is, is a place of inspiration, not just for Spencer, but for anyone that visits there. Um, it's infectious. Um, but yet, for Spencer, Spencer, it is also a place of anxiety, uh, possibly a place of exile, uh, but ultimately is home. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcast. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.